Hello, everyone, and welcome to our new podcast, We Should Probably Be Studying. My name is Paula Kincaid, and I am joined today with my co-host and dear friend, Nick Johnson. Nick, say hi to everyone. What's up? What's up? We are just a guy and a girl trying to leave our mark in the social sciences. And today we are joined by Ashley Roccapriore and Tim Paula. And they had written a paper titled, I don't need a degree, I've got abs, influencer warmth and competence, communication mode, and stakeholder engagement on social media. Well, this paper was just recently accepted and is now in press with the Academy of Management Journal. And hopefully our listeners are ready. This is We Should Probably Be Studying. All right. Hello. So I guess we can start with just telling us a little bit about yourselves, both personally and academically. Uh, So I'm a fifth year PhD candidate at University of Tennessee. I'll kind of go into this in a little bit, but when we talk about the paper, but uh, I actually owned a fitness and nutrition company before I came to get my PhD, which is kind of what started this paper's inspiration. Um, I don't know what else to say about myself besides that. (laughs) <laughs> what do you do research on, Ashley? Oh, that's a good one to add. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thanks, Tim. I, this is why we need you on these things. Teamwork. My, yeah. My research looks at how stakeholders make decisions about entrepreneurs, uh, both financially and non-financial based resources, and how those decisions about those resources influence entrepreneurs' uh, performance and whether or not they're successful. And I, uh, I'm the... Haslam Chair in Business and Distinguished Professor of Entrepreneurship at the University of Tennessee. I'm starting my fifth year at Tennessee. I moved here in 2018. Uh, I was at Penn State for 14 years before that, then Maryland for a couple of years before that, and Wisconsin for four years before that. Did my PhD at Illinois. Um, prior to my academic career, I, uh, I got an MBA at University of Texas Austin, and I worked in, uh, in Houston for a few years. I was a compensation consultant for what was then Coopers and Librand, and uh, and then I worked it for a uh, independent insurance brokerage um, as a case design analyst. So I did all the number crunching for uh, for for we did high net worth estate planning and design non qualified benefit plans for senior executives. And so I did all the number crunching and scenario analysis, all that kind of stuff for you know for that. So that's a little bit of my background. I'm originally from Illinois, so I grew up in the Chicago area. So yeah, yeah. what part of we're Chicago? Elgin, Illinois, and Sleepy yeah. Hollow. Mm-hmm. Go so, Cubs, go! That's right, North Side, so <laughs> yes. Northwest, Northwest suburbs. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, I was born in Chicago, and then um, about until I was eight, I lived about two hours southwest of Chicago. Um, I was about thirty minutes from Ottawa. Okay. Yep. So I'm very familiar with the good old Midwest up there. Right. Yes. <laughs> very much so. Ashley and Dr. Pollock, it seems as if you two both had lives before academia. Uh, What was the driving force that caused each of you to pursue a PhD? So for me, uh, my husband has a PhD in physics. And so I kind of watched him go through, yeah, it's a different world. Mm -hmm. I I came in very naively after seeing him do a physics PhD and was like, oh, this seems interesting. And it's night and day different. But seeing how much he just grew personally during that experience, I thought this seems really cool. 
And that's probably the nice way to say that I decided to pursue a PhD. But honestly, the main driving force for me was the autonomy, the autonomy to research whatever I wanted to research, wherever I wanted to research it. I get bored very easily. So I like the ability to work on multiple projects. So you're never bored and you always are interested in what you're doing every day. Um, So really the autonomy to do what you want is the driving force of why I decided this was the career for me. Oh, I agree with that. Yeah, for sure. Yes. Yeah. So for me, so when I was, when I was an undergrad, so it had never really been on my radar, but when I was a senior in college, I took a strategy course and I really dug as a finance major as an undergrad and, um, and I really liked it. And I thought, you know, Hey, this whole, you know, being a professor could be a cool gig. Cause I liked, you know, I thought and I had no concept of research at that point. I thought, you know, teaching would be fun. And I, you know, I competed in forensics and I liked doing, you know, public speaking and all that kind of stuff. And so I thought, Hey, this would be a neat, this would be a neat gig. And so I, I'll do it someday if I want to go get other experiences first. And so, you know, I went, got my MBA, went and worked. And then I was 27, you know, single, tired of living in Houston, thinking, okay, good time yeah. to go back to school. Car was paid off. So, uh, <laughs> so, so, uh, so I, uh, I, I, I made the plunge and, uh, and, but I, and it turned out, you know, a lot of what I had always done uh, in terms of my work, you know, my jobs in terms of working with big data sets and database and out, you know, things like that lent itself really well to what we did, you know, in academia. Um, and I was, you know, initially, and I think the compensation, executive compensation stuff, especially this is the early 90s. So I started my PhD program in 93. So, um, you know, it was, you know, the barbarians of the gate and all the hostile takeover stuff of the late 80s was really interesting and all the power dynamics with the investment banks and then all the executive compensation stuff that was happening. And those were some of my initial driving, driving interests when I started my PhD program. And then, and I got matched up with two folks, Jim Wade and Joe Porak, um, who, you know, who my interests overlapped with and had this big project going on with this, with, with the, with the proxy data that they, cause they just changed all the proxy disclosure rules and stuff. And that's, that's where, where it started. But I love, yeah. I mean, like actually the autonomy, I could never work in an office or work for other people like ever again. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I was just at the, um, OB doc consortium at AOM and one of the speakers had said, you know, when you think about it. There are only two professions in which you can do what you want to do and you don't have a boss. That's be an entrepreneur and be an academia. And you know what? I'm not being an entrepreneur. I don't like taking that much risk. <laughs> I think, however, I do think that academics, we are entrepreneurs of ideas. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. that is I mean, so insightful. It's, it's true. Yeah. I mean, I mean, what you have to do as an academic is, is exactly what entrepreneurs have to do. You know, you don't get to go in and sit there and wait for somebody to tell you what to do and give you assignments and that kind of stuff. If you're an entrepreneur, you're doing everything, you're figuring it out. It's the same. Yep. And are really self-motivated. And we are as well. I mean, that's, you know, when I when I talk about, you know, my writing book, one of the things I open with, I always say is, you know, we have an awesome job because our job is to think of interesting, unanswered questions, figure out how to answer it, do it and then tell the story. I mean, that is what our job is. Yes. And that is. And that is super cool. I mean, like we did with this project, you know, when that, you know, that actually had conceived of, and then, you know, we had to figure out, okay, how are we going to figure out the answers to the questions that she had? And then, you know, and see how, how, how it went and how we, and then how we told the story actually really changed over the course of the review process. So. Yeah, definitely. And your book, Tim, uh, about the storytelling is fantastic. I've read that thing multiple times and I think it has helped tremendously with my own writing. And I noticed in the paper that 
you two did a really good job at telling the story and this in itself could be like a little miniature book. It literally tells a story. So I would love to be able to gain those skills someday. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Pressure on me to do that. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> so um, Ashley, you are a doctoral candidate at Tennessee. So I'm assuming that you met Dr. Pollock in one of your seminar courses or am I wrong? How did you guys first start working together? Yeah, um, I didn't have a class with him until my spring semester of my mm -hmm. first year was when I think the OT class was with you, yeah. Tim. Yeah. Um, and we started working on this project in my first semester. Uh, so Tim and I actually both came to UT at the same time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had seen a call for a special issue in, I think it was small business economics on sports mm -hmm. management. Um, and I had gone to our PhD coordinator, Dave Williams, and I said, hey, I have this idea. Do you think it's a, it'll work? And he said, I love the idea. I think you should shoot for one of the premieres like an AMJ. You should talk to Tim about it. So I was actually at a wedding. One of my, my best friend got married and I said, Tim, I want to talk about this idea and I don't want to wait. Can we Zoom? And he was like, yeah, let's Zoom. So I was in our Airbnb right an hour before I had to go to this wedding telling Tim about the idea and Tim was like oh this is cool let's do it and and the cool thing I'll, I'll kind of talk a little bit about Tim for a second the cool thing about working with Tim is Great. Tim is really really good with working with doctoral students and if they come to him with an idea even if it's not in his area that he's used to researching if the idea is cool he's all in helping with whatever you need for that project so we started working on this particular project in early October of my first semester. And then I used that paper for my seminar paper in his OT class um, oh. the following semester. Oh, neat. And then we started collecting the data the summer after that, right? Yeah. It ended up being her second year working paper, which then ended up being published in AMJ. Wow, that is, a, that is so That's, impressive. Those are goals right there. Yeah. So we keep talking about this paper, this paper, yeah. Uh, but we haven't actually given our listeners an idea of what this paper is about. So Ashley, as first author, could you give us an elevator pitch about yeah. your most recent publication? Yeah. So this paper is about social media entrepreneurs. Uh, so our, everyone in our sample it owns a fitness and nutrition company that operates primarily or solely on social media. Um, we used Instagram and we followed these 488 entrepreneurs over six months, collected all their data, over 52,000 posts, over 8 million comments from social media users and over 620,000 replies to those comments from these entrepreneurs. Uh, and basically what we were trying to understand is, is it better for them to use images or words since Instagram, the platform we use is requires a picture for every post Mm -hmm. Or is, and within those images and words, is it better for them to show that they're competent, that they could do the things that they're claiming they can do? Or is it better for them to show warmth that they want to have a relationship with these individuals? And how did those influence the engagement of the stakeholders that they're pursuing through these channels, which are primarily customers? Mm -hmm. And different levels of engagement, different cognitive effort to take that engagement versus followers versus commenting. Um, how did those differ as well, depending on what the influencers did? Okay, very interesting. 
Um, what roadblocks did you guys experience during the paper writing process uh, that were particularly memorable to you? I, I want to hear Tim's opinion on this too, but I think for me, when we started collecting the data, we had originally decided we were going to do two days a week, three mm -hmm. months. We were just going to see what they were doing. But the issue is, is that a lot, since it's fitness and nutrition, a lot of these people were doing the same exercises every Tuesday and Thursday. So it was like arms day and every Tuesday is arms day. And so mm -hmm. all we were getting was them talking about the same exercises. <laughs> so we were like, okay, this is, this is not going to work, which is why we expanded it to six days a week. And then we were getting some cool stuff and we said, all right, let's just do this six months and see if this is, does, is there a temporal effect here? Mm -hmm. uh, and we kind of expanded it there. So I think early on the biggest roadblock was is there really nothing happening here? Or are we just looking at the wrong days of the week? Oh. <laughs> yeah. and, and and I and I think then the, the the other big snafu was during one month when or one week when Ashley was uploading was collecting the data, the API updated during the middle of the data collection. Yes. So we lost a whole bunch of observations for that, you know, for that, for that, for that week. Was it a week or a month? That was a week, right? We collected follower information at the end of every month. And when I went yeah. to get it at the end of that month, it yeah. knocked it out. So we yeah. lost 20% of for that month. And we had to go back and figure out what their followers were in that particular month. Yeah, which is hard to do because it's constantly shifting. Sure. It's, they, it's not like, you know, and the, they don't have like a historical record you can just go back to, to, you know, to, to see what it was. So we had to do, you know, so we had to do some, you know, some, some monkeying around and interpret and interpretation and, and and estimates and stuff like that and replacement, you know, substituting data for some of the missing values and so forth, based upon averages around what they, you know, what they had before and after when we lost the data. Oh wow, <laughs> so that was to, oh. to, to fill in to fill in the missing. It didn't it didn't end up affecting our results, but you know. That was that was that was definitely kind of a, a a brown underwear moment for Ashley when she's like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> <laughs> Sitting in Tim, one, I think it was Tim's writing class, and going, Tim's like, "So where are we at?" And I was like, "I'm trying to find this data, like search for this data." And you know, another thing too, the API that Tim's talking about, we had to leverage someone else's API because I had written code to go in and scrape the data. And Instagram blocks you and won't right. let you, like the code was going to Instagram and then kicking me yep. out. Yep. And the issue is that Instagram, when we started collecting the data versus a couple weeks in, changed their rules and their security features. Oh, I think it was like in July and we started this in June. Oh, and man. basically you couldn't get in unless you had a business reason to be scraping their data. So we had to find someone else's API that let us use it and pay for them to use to pay to use their API in order to even get this data. And then in the middle of a month, it was just like, we're redoing the API we have. And we're like, okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so that was so that was one of the that was one of the biggest, you know, the the biggest things. And then and we had our basic story and relationships really pretty early on. But throughout the whole process, I think one of the biggest things is what are the constructs we're actually studying? You know, initially we were talking about reputation of celebrity and decided that really wasn't what we were capturing and okay. moved on, you know, to, with the different, you know, with the, with the different things. And so we were trying to continually throughout the whole actual review process, 
hone in on what are you know what are the best construct labels definitions that were that you know that we're capturing with this with the stuff and the paper really evolved you know tremendously mm-hmm. over b- both before we actually sent it out and then through the revisions to to get all this stuff really really clarified so. and how do you how do you go about deciding which constructs are the ones that you're going to go with um was there any particular thought process or was it kind of more of a gut feeling like this just does not seem right let's keep digging in the literature or how did that work for you too so there is a um fitness it's like a fitness conference but it's called an expo called the arnold expo it's in uh columbus ohio every year and it's the biggest expo at least in the u.s if not globally Mm -hmm. uh so i drove up to columbus to attend this my first year this was pre-covid so Mm -hmm. the next year they canceled it so it was good timing right um so i drove up there just to kind of observe the dynamics between these individuals and the influencers that were had booths there. And I'm sitting there talking to one of the people that had been waiting in line for two hours just to take a picture with one of these influencers. And there's actual video, the influencer wound up posting it. You could see me in the video talking with my recorder to this person. And they come in through a door behind me. And as I'm talking to this girl, she notices the influencer behind me. She starts screaming and hyperventilating, crying. And I'm like, what is happening? This is the strangest experience. And so I went back, I called Tim and I was like, something weird is happening here. Like, it seems like a celebrity thing. There's an emotional response. These people have a lot of media. It seems like celebrity. So we had started on that because that's, it fit. Mm -hmm. Um, But then as we were going through it, we were like, but there's more to this than just celebrity. I mean, yeah, they've got celebrity on there, but what about the influencers that are just starting and don't have a booth at expos like this that are still getting good responses? There's something else there. Mm-hmm. Um, and through the res- the review process is when those constructs really changed based on reviewer feedback that was really, really helpful to figure out what should we be talking about here? What's the story that actually is more meaningful than what we're, the two of us can come up with? Sure. Yeah. And and I think that, I mean, Ashley, if you should tell them the origin story of how the study actually came about, because I think that also helps illustrate how we were thinking about or why we were looking at the things we did. Yeah, so I'll make this a brief one. My, my fitness and nutrition company I owned before I came to my PhD, uh, I would have clients that I was training and make them these custom plans. And my business was just like these entrepreneurs that are in this study. It was entirely online. And so I was making these plans and the clients that I would sell them to would then take them and resell them. And they were getting more clients than I had. They didn't have credentials. They didn't get certifications. They didn't go and do the uh, continuing education they were required to do to do this. But there's no governing body for the fitness and nutrition industry to say these people can't do this. And so my clients were doing better business than I was and they were my plans. And so I kept thinking, okay, something weird is here that I've got all the credentials. They don't. Is it celebrity? Is it something else? What is it that they have that I clearly am not doing at the same magnitude that they're doing, that they're able to get these stakeholders, these customers to Mm -hmm. buy into their ideas and buy into them. And so when, when we saw the celebrity part, we were like, okay, it's a celebrity, but these Also, the clients that I had didn't have millions of followers. They didn't have a booth. And so there's some, there's other dynamics at play there, but originally we thought it was a credentials story. 
Hmm. And it turned into more of a competence story than just credentials. We still control for credentials in the paper. Um, hmm. But that was kind of what sparked it. And then the celebrity piece came in and we were trying to put all these pieces together to figure out what is the story we want to tell. Hmm. Yeah, yeah I mean, no. it's just more credentials and and signaling and impression management and those sort those are kind of more of the the constructs we're 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 building on and I was um, I was telling my personal trainer about you know the project as we're working on this and stuff and and he actually sent me a parody video of of, of a, fit, a fitness influencer like that so this guy there's this guy who does these, he does these different parody videos and he also happens to be like ripped. And so he did, and so he did this video, and that's where the title came from. Because one of the lines in this thing was, you know, I don't need a degree from a school I was too dumb to get into. I've got abs, <laughs> and that's where the and that's where the title of the paper came from. The, the video's hilarious, but you know, thinking about these things and about how the images were their credentials, right? You know, the people use they look at the picture, they see somebody who's you know doing these you know really hard to do exercises or looking ripped or showing before and afters of themselves or their clients. And even though you don't know how did they get that, is it sustainable? Was it healthy? You know, mm -hmm. is it going to promote injuries? You don't know anything about the person, but they just look at the pictures and say, okay, that's the, you know, and how and the mechanism between that and then how people communicate on you know on the posting and the back and forth and the mm -hmm. you know and when a, when an influencer responds to somebody, you think about you know people who follow celebrities and if a celebrity actually comments on your comment. It's like, oh my God, you know, get all, get all excited. They actually talk to me. They, they know me. They see me. I'm a real, you know, and, and, and that those, building those kinds of relate, what we, we initially had a different label for, but building these like kind of relationships, this one-sided relationship where the, the, the influencer is like communicating one to many, mm -hmm. but in a way that feels like it's personal. And the, and the followers are, are developing what they feel like is a personal relationship with the influencer even though it may not really be that. And there are these other mechanisms at play about how, you know, Instagram works and how you're going to enhance your positions and gain resources. And we're initially also thinking about this as a resource thing. It's like, mm -hmm. how do you gain resources online and treating followers as a resource? Because that can lead to the more followers you have, better placement, access to different tools that, you, that other people don't get to use on Instagram and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so we were thinking about this as a resource story and more of a signaling and impression management story. Mm. And that's how we really wrote the first version of the paper. Mm. And then, but then as we went through the review process, our thinking got clarified, reviewers provided comments and pointed us to different literatures and it really evolved after that during the, over the course of the revisions. Was there any feedback that you did get from reviewers that kind of made you roll your eyes and just think, come on now, that's kind of silly? Or was everything that you received um, feedback-wise from the reviewers pretty much value-added and you were like, yes, we're going to do all of this? So for the most part, I'd say the vast majority of the feedback we got was really helpful. And I think I've said this to Tim time and time again, you know, it's very scary before you go into an R&R process, especially especially at a premier journal of the horror stories of, you know, reviewer two and how bad it's going to be. Mm -hmm. I thought it was so rewarding to see how much the paper improved. Thanks to the feedback of the reviewers. It's, it's a much better paper now because of their feedback that said, yeah, there were some, we kind of rolled our eyes to the first round. We had a reviewer who in their first point accused us of harking. And then in their last point encouraged us to hark. And so <laughs> what? Yeah. And, 
so I, I was like, Tim, I don't know how to respond to this. I don't know how to, this is why it's been really helpful working with Tim and with senior faculty. Cause some of these things I'm like, do I do point A or point Z? <laughs> I don't know how to respond. Yeah. And so um, that one was kind of like, I don't know what to do here. And so we kind of shook our heads there, but for the but, most part, it was pretty reasonable. Yeah, but, but we did, but in responding to that particular point, we highlighted <clears throat> rather than engage in the did we didn't we kind of you know kind mm -hmm. of thing we pointed out and i said you know the basic relationships that we're looking at have been are the same ones we drew on my whiteboard in my office two years ago mm -hmm. and are still there and and we walked through all the things we're doing to be transparent and all the stuff mm -hmm. that we've done and yeah this you may not have come up with the same ideas but you know that doesn't mean we didn't, <laughs> you know, coming from a, from a different vantage point. And sure. we kind of ignored some of the things they asked us to do. We just didn't acknowledge it, but really kind of made our, you know, made, made our case and the reviewer, you know, and also pointed out that they were, you know, that, you know, hypotheses change during the course of the process. I said, just like, you know, we've, we're, you know, we, we've changed some, you know, some of our hypotheses based on suggestions you all have made. And, in, in, you know, and in fact, you suggested that we change our hypotheses based on, you know, these effect size things in your, in your, in your point 11. So these things change during the course of a process. That's normal. Mm -hmm. said, and most of our changes have been on with regards to construct definitions, but the basic relationships are still the same basic relationships we've always looked at. So we okay. acknowledge, you know, we addressed it without kind of being, you know, being offended, but also kind of tweaked a little bit by note by noting, hey, you even you yourself in this point asked us to do this. So yeah, you know, for sure. You know how you how you go. You know you want to be. You don't want to just roll over for them, but at the same time, you don't want to make it. You don't want to get in a fight with them. Sure, definitely. And that was one thing like with qualitative work, for example, it's normal for once you start doing your research, the research question will adapt and it will change according to what you're finding. And that's completely accepted, completely normal. But I feel like in quantitative work, it's not it's not so much like that. And it almost is like you're expected, at least from the student perspective. It seems like you have to have your hypotheses designed and set up and ready to go beforehand. And then you cannot change it after that. So it's nice to hear that throughout the review process that actually caused you to change some of your hypotheses or necessarily the constructs, because I just feel like we don't hear that side of the story very often. I mean, another part of this too, Paula, is we did have reviewers ask us to post our data and our hypothesis in the in online. And mm -hmm. when you spend six months scraping this much data, making it publicly available, when this is your first publication out of that data is a really hard decision. And so sure. I think that that was another decision point that we understood the reviewers asking for it because it is a cool data set and it would prove useful to other people. Sure. Um, so it was something that we understood, but I think both Tim and I philosophically think for a lot of this more strategy-based research, sharing these data sets that we could reuse for another project isn't something we wanted to do. And so that was another obstacle with the reviewers we had to overcome because like you said, it's different when it's quantitative and, and changing these hypotheses. Yeah, they wanted us to post some of it online, but if we did that, we would be losing some of our data um, that we could reuse. So it's this really weird balance. And, and we also face issues, I mean, with the image data, so if you can identify who the people are, you know, right. so we're, you know, we're not going to, you know, we blurred a couple faces in, 
you know, for the paper, for our, for our examples, but we're not going to blur 56,000 face yeah. posts and, and, you know, and hide, you know, so we're, so we're not going to make this stuff. And that's true of any archival data set. They want, you know, it's one thing when you're collecting data on, you know, a couple hundred, you know, freshmen and doing an experiment, you're never going to use it again. That's one thing. When you're using databases that your school subscribed to, pays a licensing fee, you can't just go and put that data out there because now you're violating licensing fees, or you may have non-disclosure agreements that you know to to not reveal certain things with the you know with your data sources, especially with the archival stuff or with survey stuff. So, it's not as simple as oh, just put it all out online and let everybody look at it. I mean, you know, I think that there are differences with different kinds of quantitative research. I'd be like saying, hey, tell me, give me all your interview transcripts. Right. Let's post, the, let's post those online. Right. I didn't even realize before we got on the interview that the reviewers had asked for your data and that you guys chose not to, to do it. And I mean, yeah. I don't blame you one bit. That's a lot of hard work. And why would you just want to give it out for everybody? Just let them go with it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, this is part of, you know, I mean, this, I mean, this is also part of the, your competitive advantage and the, the research. I mean, we can do more papers out of this data and this is, you know, for actually your career, you know, mm-hmm. it's a, it's, it's a big deal. You know, you don't just put this stuff out there and, you know, and again, you know, different types of even quantitative research are different and there are different mm-hmm. norms and you can't apply the norms of one, you know, experimental research to other kinds. And that's, you know, that's something that I, I, I feel very strongly about. Sure. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I, and I, and I, there seems to be too much kind of like public pushing mm-hmm. of kind of one set of norms onto other domains, which I have kind of really major issues with. And so how do you determine if you can reuse your data set? Do you have to um, change a data set in terms of doing a random sample of that data set? Or can you reuse the entire thing completely if it's a different idea? So you need to have different predictor variables. You can't just say, oh, the, the controls in one variable are the IVs in another with the same DV. So when I've used different data sets, I've used different subsets of the variables. Sometimes I add new data in that wasn't there in a prior data or in a prior study reconfigure the data so it's structured in you know in different ways um so you're not just running the same models using the same the same variables and the same in in the same structures so there has to be some some variation there but i mean actually collected data that we didn't use you know we can and all the and all the posts could be coded for different things Mm. so there's lots of opportunities there to to, to do other stuff with the, you know, with, with the data as well. So, you know, so, so in our case and, and the outcomes we looked at, we could look at different outcomes. Okay. So. And all so, the images too, we manually, like I literally sat there manually coding them. I think it was like three times across the review process, these 52,000 images. So we could recode them all again in a different way and look for different things in the images. And there's now AI and machine learning stuff coming out mm-hmm. where you can mm-hmm. do more of this automate part of the process yeah where was that two years ago yeah Yeah. (laughs) although one one of the fun parts was actually creating the controls for attractiveness and fitness oh yeah yeah because you're basically you know swipe left swipe right hot or not you know (laughs) and we had a bunch of different people you know ashley was doing it i was doing it we had she had friends and her husband and we had you know and, and we got somebody younger too and we had people from different nationalities and ethnicities you know, all involved in this because there's different conceptions of attractiveness. Sure. And different, and we wanted to be able to capture all, you know, capture that in our in our in our coding. But everybody was given images with overlapping, you know, subsamples, and we're coding them as attractive or not. And then it had to, you know, create our measures from that. But you know, you're sitting there in your office looking at a bunch of, you know, 
scantily clad people you know and and and, and, and rating them as attractive or unattractive and stuff so. and that's crazy because that was just a control variable but it sounds like that yeah. took so much time mm -hmm. yeah i mean i feel like I feel like I should win the best wife award that I encouraged my husband to look at these scantily clad women and rate their attractiveness. <laughs> now, yeah, it took a while, but it was worth it, right? Like you sure got an AMJ out of it. So if this is what it takes yeah. to get the AMJ, it's mm -hmm. worth it to do that work. Okay. Sure, and, and I think that's one of the most important things, like you know, to learn, you know, from our experience. It's it's a good illustration of you got to put in the effort, mm -hmm. and you got to be open to suggestions and what people are mm -hmm. saying. And you know, I, I think one of the you know, as an editor for AMJ too, as associate editor, and as a reviewer for you know many journals for many years, one of the mistakes a lot of people make is they is they, it's okay to push back on things and not necessarily do exactly what people ask for every for everything because i've seen people lose their papers by trying to be too accommodating mm -hmm. but more often people go the other direction and they and they spend all their time in the response letter saying, saying why they're not going to do mm. what somebody asks and they don't change enough and they're not open enough gotcha. to new ideas they get so wed to their one mm -hmm. <clears throat> course of action that they don't you know they they're not really open to to new ideas and new and and, and new approaches mm -hmm. wow yeah. No, I, yeah. so Dr. Pollock, I think moving on your point there, I've been told that reviewers, they're not trying to completely change your paper or reject your paper. They're, they're trying to help you. So in a way you can think about your reviewers as an additional author, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, Ashley, I would, I would like to hear your experience as, as kind of like new to the process as opposed to the old jaded me, um, you know, what you, how you, how, how you experienced that for the first time. So why don't you take that? Why don't you take that first? Yeah. So I, like I was saying earlier, I think, you know, you get this idea in your head of what this review process is like, and you can become jaded before you ever even get into it just because of what these horror stories you hear. And maybe I'm weird. I I actually minus the time it took to go through the review process, I actually really liked the review process. I thought it challenged me to learn new things that I didn't know. The methods in it, I had econometric classes, so doing it initially was straightforward. I knew how to do it, but there were some challenges that they asked us to do things that I didn't know how to do. And because of this review process, I got to learn all these new things that I didn't know, new literatures that I mean, multimode communication is not something I was super familiar with. Hmm. Um so yeah, I, I, from Nick to your point, they're, they are kind of like co-authors. And I think if you look at it that way of, if this person wasn't a reviewer and they were a co-author offering mm -hmm. the suggestion, how would you respond to them? You're not gonna be like, you dumbass. How could you say that about <laughs> <Yeah>. my work, <laughs> right? Well, maybe, I mean, maybe you do just behind closed doors. You're not gonna say it to their face. But I think looking at it when even you respond to them as if they were a co-author, how would you respond to this person that you were, you're trying to build a relationship with your co-authors. You're not gonna respond to them in a nasty way. So sure. I think that thinking about it as, I, I've told Tim that the way I've likened the review process as a doc student is to how you answer comps, right? Like comprehensive mm -hmm. exam answers. You have to make sure you answer every single part of the question so same thing with the response, every piece of the, the reviewer response. And then you have to make sure that you are arguing it in a way that convinces them that what you're saying is right. And 
you don't want to respond in a comps answer that you disagree with the person writing that question and how they answer they asked you the wrong question sure. um so responding to it in a positive way is helpful for them and you to make it through to the next round but in my point of view i actually found the, re the review process really rewarding because i got to okay. learn a lot from it this learning from this process was I've told Tim this a million times. I've learned more through this process than I've learned in a lot of my seminars. Mm -hmm. It's just helpful. It's real world application of what we're doing in this career. Right. Nice. Yeah. I mean, I learned new literatures. I wasn't familiar with multimodal communication previously mm -hmm. either. Mm -hmm. We delved more into the, you know, in the communications literature. Mm -hmm. um, the, the method that we ended up using was not one I'd ever used before. We, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a friend of mine had recommended it you know, to us when we were dealing with issues, because we had done just, we'd done random effects regression on the first round and, and mm -hmm. people were raising issues and, and to, to, we couldn't do what they wanted us to do because there are other problems. And so we, you know, we had to come up with the solution method. And that, those were some of the things that took the longest time was figuring out how are we going to analyze the data mm -hmm. in ways that address the concern, but that also are, are right, you know, are reasonable in that and and that work, and so and that was a big so using like the you know the 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 Hausman Taylor random mm -hmm. effects regression, that was something I'd never even heard of until yeah. un, un, until Qho had suggested it to us. Qho Jin um, was was a, a co-author of mine on on other papers, mm -hmm. um, stats genius, and uh, and it was great. I mean, it, it actually kind of helped solve our problems and allowed us to at least move forward. You know, okay. and, and we had some methodological things that they kept wanting us to do that we finally ground them down on, you know, but one of the things we also did, even when you know, you know, some, something they're asking you to do is wrong, or you know why it's, why it's not going to work. That doesn't mean you don't do it. You explain mm -hmm. to them why it's not going to work or why it's inappropriate. Mm -hmm. And then you do it anyway. And you mm -hmm. show them in the letter and then say and see and as we expected, boom, 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 boom. You know, mm. and I think that's that's one thing that a lot of people don't do is that they, they they'll say why why they're not going to do it as opposed to that you know because with the method stuff in particular mm -hmm. you can run different kinds of models mm -hmm. it might not be appropriate the assumptions might not work with your data so forth and so you so you want to gently educate the reviewer but you do it anyway and you, you know because you can and you can show it to them and then but then you explain why you know why not or you treat it as a robustness test or you can do you know, one of the nice things now, it's, it's this has been a newer thing, are, are, are online supplements mm. and more and more. And, and we made great use of that to put a lot of stuff in the online supplements that the reviewers asked about that oh. weren't appropriate and they keep the paper from being, you know, 100 pages long. Yeah. And I think, too, there were some times that they asked us to do something and we'd ask people we knew like QHO for help. Mm -hmm. And they may not have the answers. So we're posting the state list and we're trying to figure out how to do this. Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes we had to say to the reviewers, it's not possible to do this using a Hausman Taylor. There are certain assumptions that it takes to do this. And so even if you can't do it, showing them that you tried to do it and you acknowledge what they did and you perform these other tests to alleviate those concerns that they had that was making them make that suggestion, can be helpful too, because then at least they feel like you're listening and you're trying to do what they're asking. Mm, yes. gotcha. and, and if you describe all the steps you went through to try to solve their problem, then they see you're putting in the effort, that you're mm. not just blowing them off, mm -hmm. you know, even if, you're the, even if the answer isn't what they, what, what they want. Mm.
And do you remember about how long it took from the time that you first submitted your manuscript to AMJ and then when you got the conditional acceptance or when it um, went live in press? Um, okay, so our original submission was November 23rd, 2020. Okay. Mm-hmm. The acceptance was June 15th, 2022. So it was about a year and a half between uh, just going from submission to impress. Now, keep in mind, it's not published. As Jim has yeah. said, it probably won't even be published till next summer at the mm-hmm. earliest. Sure. Um, so, and, and some of the, I mean, I could tell you dates between all the rounds. We went three rounds, but some of the rounds were shorter than others. There were some that we were like, did they forget about us? This is <laughs> 90 days. What's happening? Like, which is a little stressful when you're a doctoral student of mm-hmm. is 90 days a good thing? Is it a bad thing? What- Are we going to get rejected? Is this going to um, be able yeah. to hurry up before I go on the job market? <laughs> I remember texting Tim and being like, Tim, been 92 days should I be worried it's like calm down <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you gotta watch it yeah you know, I mean we're watching this nice at least because manuscript central tells you when the reviews are in so you know if it's uh, just waiting on the slow reviewer and then it once it's in the editor's hands for you know you can see how long it you know it it, it, it takes them and stuff as I said be, you know be patient and having been on the other side of that it makes it easier because I know especially at AMJ I got I got way behind because I had so many papers that were coming in and decisions that I had to write that I mean I was writing I was writing two letters a week so and I was writing eight letters a month and I was I would be I would be getting 16 a month so oh, wow so do the math about how quick it is, how quickly you can fall a couple months behind working you know at that kind of at, at that at that kind of a pace, mm-hmm. so yeah, you know, sure. so I'm like, just let's be patient. But if it gets to four months, I'll 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 shoot Louisa an email, our editor, and uh, and kind of just see where things are at. So you know, and I I never took offense when anybody checked with me, and you know, because if I was if it was taking a long time, then they had a, a it was reasonable to ask me what the hell's going on, right? <laughs> you know, so but I would you know give them, you know, give them time. And, and, you know, because I was, you know, it's, it's easier for me to do it than I think it would be more comfortable for, you know, actually to make the same kind of, you know, question. I mean, it, it, it shouldn't matter. And as an editor, it wouldn't matter to me who sent me the comment, but I think sure. just kind of, it's easier when it comes from somebody who's, you know, who's old, you know, so. <laughs> sure. So we are getting close to the ending time and I really respect your time. So I think we could ask just a couple last questions. And one, I think that is going to be pretty important for our listeners is how do you think scholars can build off of the work that you have put forth in AMJ? So I've already had a couple of people once this was in, became impressed, had some people reach out about like the interactions of competence and warmth and do they interact differently in certain environments like social media versus not. If you show warmth and competence, does it help? Um, when we did a lot of our, and it's not even in the paper, we wound up per reviewer request taking it out What because none of them were significant. But I think that there's some opportunities there to see if, one, is there the same effect in other social media platforms? Like, is this just Instagram specific because they require an image or is multi-mode communication like just as important on Twitter or LinkedIn or Facebook. And I think the interaction of these, these competence and warmth cues and images and and words could also play a role in different environments and contexts than just Instagram. 
Maybe they, maybe they do interact in other contexts and we just don't know it. And they didn't in ours, but that doesn't mean they couldn't in others. And, yeah, I, mean, I think that the, you know, the, the, the different contexts, different levels of analysis, different outcomes, we're looking at followers, the number of followers somebody had, and we're looking at the, uh, at the, the, the positive language they used in their comments and replies. Right? So we're looking at the positive emotional language as a, as a higher level of engagement. And, and looking at these two things, but there are lots of other outcomes you could, you know, you could consider as well that I think would be interesting. And uh, there's another one I was thinking of, but just it just it just slipped my mind. But there, but there's a there's so much you can do with this data, with this context, different types of businesses. I mean, uh, the other thing that I was thinking about our sample in general, people had on had been doing it on average for about five years. So, so we had some newbies, we had some people who I think it like five to nine was like the, was, was the, or, you know, a couple months to, to, to nine years with a mean of about five. So um, they were more established, but if you study new folks and their transition and how they build over time, you might find different dynamics. And, and that's one of the things the reviewers were asking about in the editor from the get go, they were pushing us to do a time series thing. We said, mm -hmm but they're stable. There's not much change, you know, and theoretically we're interested in between influencer differences mm. and not within influencer differences over time. And these are different right. things and have different sure. dynamics. And people think, well, if you have panel data, you automatically should do a panel study, but that's not necessarily the case. Exactly. So, sure. you know, and so that was something we were kind of fighting with the whole way, you know, along too, although ultimately by the end, it's not even in the paper anymore, but it was in every yeah. round of the revisions and talking oh, about wow. and trying to provide them stuff and showing them, yes, you know, here's what it looks like, you know, and so forth. But, um, mm -hmm. but as the, as our hypotheses evolved, that also became, became less of an issue, but, but I think doing time series stuff would be super interesting. Yeah, for sure. sure. You so, know, and so, and so, and, but, you know, picking the right sample and structuring it in a way that you can explore these things and, and have, the temporal dynamics mean something. I think it would be really, would really be really pretty useful too. One last question. So, for our non-academic listeners, those who have Instagram accounts, or who are influencers in themselves, in one or two sentences, how can they increase their stakeholder engagement? Depends on what stakeholder engagement you're looking for. If you're looking for <laughs> followers, uh, images, and competence cues are the way to go. If you're looking for uh, higher commitment engagement, like people positively responding to you, which is oftentimes how Instagram's algorithm works, then more warmth cues in words is usually the better option there. We'll have an AOM and, insights that, that makes this practical that's coming out yeah. uh, September 1st. That's what I was just gonna say. Yeah, September, yeah, so they, they did an insight. So so they have some good summary suggestions for this in the AOM insights yeah that's awesome yes, yes. all right well yeah. thank you guys so much for speaking with us do either of you have anything you want to plug for this episode to let our listeners know about anything that you're doing or that you want to do a shout out for uh well i'm gonna have these fine hosts on the tmi entrepreneurship podcast at some point uh, to talk about <laughs> student-run initiatives so we'll plug the tmi entrepreneurship podcast <laughs> Yes. And I'll, I'll plug my book, How to Use Storytelling in Academic Writing. Given how much our story changed, I think that that was a, a big part of what kept us in the game is telling a good story and having people interested enough that they wanted to continue engaging with it and helping us improve, you know, improve what we were doing and, 
tell, you know, tell a better story. Because when you think about how radically our paper changed, all the theories different, the hypotheses are different. We added new variables, things that were main effects got demoted or primary variables got demoted down to control variables and new variables or we created new variables throughout the process. That kind of that level of change throughout, you know, was 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 pretty dramatic. But the fact that we were telling an interesting story and people wanted to know more about what we were studying. Mm -hmm. kept us in the game and i think that you know the more you can the, the better storyteller you become the the you know the, the better writer you become the, the easier it is to to be more successful so okay you know, so how do you storytelling in academic writing published by edward elgar all right well thank you guys so much this was a complete joy i was so excited so was nick um, if you guys ever need anything, feel free to reach out. We are just an email away. You can send me a link when, uh, or send us a link. The podcast is out. I, I'll post, I'll put it on the, in, on my website where the article is. I always put those kinds of things right by the article so people can find them too. Oh, sweet. So. Yes, I will definitely send you guys an email with the link of the podcast once the episode drops. And I think it'll probably be on Wednesday, assuming we can get it edited in time and whatnot. Probably Wednesday. This was a lot of fun. We'll look forward to it. So September cool. 1st. I mean, the doctoral students, I mean, Ashley's doing the podcast for a, for the entrepreneurship division. You guys are doing your own podcast. I'm, I'm going to be doing a webinar for um, a guy at Cranfield who's been sponsoring these webinars. Yep. So I'm gonna I go to them. Time. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, that's just him. That's yep. not like under the auspices of anything, any institution. Right. He just started doing that and yeah, I mean he's drawing hundreds of people to these web to these webinars. So mm -hmm. I think you know the fact that you guys are all doing this stuff and making use of new technologies and, and new media instead of and not, you know, I think is I think it's fabulous. So, oh well thank you. Thank you. Well yeah. we are so glad to have had you. Well thank you. So a big thank you to Ashley and Tim for speaking with us today. Uh, we had a great conversation and hopefully this really gets the podcast going to a great start.